0: Hey, we're resuming our study of the book of Habakkuk in a passage that is full of woe. What is woe? It's a condemnation of behaviors and a description of the consequences of those behaviors. This passage also, though, indicts attitudes, which is where behavior starts. One's ideas and one's values are on display in one's behavior. And that can be a scary thought if you think it through because you and I can be prone to living in a way that isn't always consistent with what we think are our values. But there's hope, real hope in this passage as well. Hope that God in His goodness, in His justice, in His power, addresses injustice in the short term and will permanently cure it in the long term. Now we want God to address injustice in others, but his plan is to address it in all of us. Do you hear what I'm saying there? We want him to address it in other people, but what God is talking to us today about isn't just something that happens in others, it happens in us, and that's where he's asking us to start. Let me pray. Good Father, I ask that you would activate your word. Activate it in me as I explain it and in all of us as we hear what you have to say. We don't wanna come hear a history lesson or an ethics lesson or a philosophy lesson. Allow us to hear from you. By your spirit, increase our receptivity Allow us to hear what you're saying in your message. Allow us to apply what you've said through Habakkuk to ourselves. Oh, help us to apply it to ourselves and not our neighbors or our opponents, our rivals. Would you stir us to live out what you tell us this week, starting this very day. Amen. Now, Tim's message last week was emotional. Last week's highlight, I'd say, was from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, in which faith is the key. But that comment is almost a parenthetical remark if you follow the logic of the text. It's a critical parenthetical mar- remark, but it's it's an aside almost. So as we move through today's text, let's start backing up slightly with the thought that's begun in the first part of verse 4, And immediately we get an explanation of what's going on in today's passage. See, the enemy is puffed up, it says. His desires are not upright. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. At the root of these arrogant behaviors and this desire to consume is a pride and greed that means injustice is never content. It's like Mr. Creosote in that old Monty Python movie who just eats and eats and eats and eats, and God is about to tell Habakkuk that Babylon, like Mr. Creosote, is going to pay a steep price for its greed. Boom. Okay, the first part of Habakkuk chapter two, verse six says, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn saying, and then the woes are going to be pronounced. So this half half verse introduces a taunt song. The oppressor has been the top dog for a while, not a tasty Berkeley top dog, hot dog, but a cruel, vicious, greedy, abusive alpha dog. Not just Judah or Israel is going to be taunting this oppressor, but many peoples who have suffered under Babylon's rule. And you see another promise of future taunting of unjust overlords in a place like Isaiah 14, verse 4, if you want to look at that later. You see God's people being promised relief from the taunting of other nations in Zephaniah 2:8. God's people aren't exempt from taunting either. Ezekiel 5:10 puts unfaithful Jerusalem in that same place, a future recipient of taunts, because they've been unfaithful to God. But then Ezekiel 36.15, well after Ezekiel 5.10, obviously, promises eventual relief for Israel and a restoration of the nation. So you're going to be taunted and you're going to deserve it, but there will be relief when you turn to me. God is good. And though his discipline can look and feel like harsh punishment, the consequences he allows for our wrong attitudes and bad behavior are meant to bring us to him in repentance. God's discipline is meant to bring repentance. Now, why am I pointing this out? Because we can read scripture, see it talking about Babylon, and be arrogant ourselves joining the taunt. Babylon, (laughs) hey, hey! Let's not follow the pride of the Babylonians as we contemplate these five woes. Let's instead read them with humility together, understanding that we are capable, in fact, demonstrate the same kind of arrogance, indifference, and greed as that mighty nation, which had its day and then disappeared Let's have the humility to be open to God wanting to point out something in you and in me today. So let's continue Habakkuk chapter 2, the second part of verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will not they wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. So here is woe number one. It's about stealing and extortion. It's about a boundless appetite that results in sucking dry every resource around them. It's a greed that makes their position of power precarious because it unites the other nations around them in opposition. Verse eight says, because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. I think it's important to note that in verse eight, it's not describing a purely natural turning of the tables. The resentment of the oppressed people is natural, okay? Babylon is afflicting other countries, and their people resent it. But their overwhelming this all-consuming people of Babylon is not necessarily natural. The woe says, look out, you greedy ones. The consequence says, God will make you the prey of those you're bleeding dry. You're sucking the life out of them, and God is the one who's going to turn tables on you because that's how his justice is gonna work. But we also know that this isn't happening yet because God is going to use unjust Babylon first to wake up the unjust people of Judah, and it's gonna be a painful lesson. So injustice is what humanity does, but justice requires God's intervention is the equation that's being set up here in the first part of this taunt song. Let's look at the next set of verses, 9 through 11. It starts the second woe. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. The never satisfied appetite uh, of the Babylonians was the issue pointed out in the first woe, right? What that appetite drove them to do was to plunder other nations. And the second woe is about the injustice of this behavior. So the picture that's, that's given here is a tall tree with a nest being built by the Babylonians high up. Babylon can't be touched by other nations. And look, historically, Babylon was a strong, powerful, proud city. It was a proud people. It was a strong people. It was a domineering people. As Tim has said, the city itself was well fortified. It had multiple walls built around it. Picture a series of three walls thick enough that basically you could race NASCAR around it if you had NASCAR. And from that secure nest, they looted all the other nations' nests. Which brings me to my recent picture of this, which is the story of Brian. Brian was a morning dove. Actually, Brian was two morning doves, but we didn't realize that immediately. The picture that you see is of a planter with a dead plant in it, because the water hose that you see in the picture doesn't work, it turns out. well. It went from being a planter for a dead plant to a nesting site for a pair of mourning doves that we decided to name Brian. Thank you, Naomi. And so whichever one was sitting on it was Brian. Now here's how this works. Mourning doves are on kind of the bottom of the pecking order. The survival rate of mourning doves and their young is pretty abysmal. And while we enjoyed watching them faithfully nesting, Watching over their eggs for several days, at one point I heard a bang in the window as one of the Bryans ran into it flying away from a crow. Well, after a little while it went back to the nest, but guess what? A couple hours later the crow came back and uh, the crow's looking for an easy meal of a bird or an egg or both eggs and the Bryans abandoned the nest. And this is the picture of the Babylonians have their high nest. The morning doves can't do anything about the crows. But what the crows can do is go harass the morning doves until they have to abandon what they have. And here's what the Babylonians were doing, since it wasn't literal nests. They stole the timbers from places like Lebanon, which had lush natural forests. They stole the cut stones that made other countries, other people's buildings. They felt invulnerable. But what they didn't know is that God would use their injustice to address other injustice. And then he would allow them to be humiliated by others. And all they had acquired would be demolished and carried away. The city would be ruined. Babylon the city is an archaeological site today however you might be attempting uh, to apply this to the geopolitics and economics of today, don't do that. Not yet. Address your own sources of greed first, because that's where this started, with an insatiable appetite that says there can never be enough, which drives individuals to seek different kinds of gain, including exploitative gain. So building by unjust gain produces shame and results in a forfeited life. That sounds pretty rough. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have a five year old phone. Not getting a new phone is one way. I remind myself to check my appetite for all the best new stuff, especially because I know the people who made this device while they're happy for the employment live a much more difficult life than I do. Now, my wife Karen doesn't have this problem. She's inclined to be frugal, but I have a huge appetite for technology and avoiding being ruled by that desire requires actually active effort on my part and continuing to learn bit by bit contentment in the circumstances God has put me in. Where though is your limitless appetite? Do you have to have the best vacations? Do you want control over situations and some control is never enough? How about real estate? Your portfolio is what it's all about. Bucket list experiences? Substances? Sex? Stocks? Power? Praise? There are so many ways in which we can succumb to an appetite that will never be fully satisfied. And that's what that woe is about. Let's move on to verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the third woe, and it's about violence. Notice how the woes move. Greed to injustice to violence. It's escalating. There's a building of the things that God is calling out. One leads to another. But notice here the contrast between this violent effort by the people setting the world afire in the text and what God is going to make happen. The knowledge of God's glory will be known all over the earth. How? Like, the waters cover the sea. Now, just think about that image for a moment. What part of the waters, that is, what part of the sea isn't covered by waters? All the sea, by definition, is covered by waters. So this is a simile that said, The knowledge of God's surpassing glory will be known everywhere, by everyone. It'll be known in expanse. It'll be known in depth. It will be known profoundly. Isaiah 45, 22 through 24 reminds me a bit of this. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, every tongue by me will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Human nature escalates to violence, but God in his glory resolves his righteous anger to salvation. Human nature is going to go from violence to violence, but God's glorious power can take his righteous anger and can terminate it in the salvation of those he brings in. This is the only way out of the cycle of greed and injustice and violence, and that is the glory of God sweeping the world, turning all who are at odds with one another into subjects of a holy and righteous God, and nothing will stand against that resolution of our violence problem. Let's look at the next woe. Habakkuk 2 verses 15 through 16, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. Here, the woe is about seduction and exploitation, not just high above everyone in the comfort that their pillaging has brought them. The Babylonians use their power and wealth to consume others by exploitation. So this cup that the book is talking about, there's rufinol in the Babylonian cup because that's how they amuse themselves with others. But look out, Babylon, because God has a cup, too. It's a cup that doesn't black you out, but opens your eyes to what your depravity and sin have done, the consequences of our attitudes, values, and actions. God doesn't hold up the neuralizer right for men in black and cause you to forget. That's not his solution verse 17 says the violence you have done to lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them so although you felt safe babylon as you robbed lebanon of its famous cedars and slaughtered people like they were animals and exploited cities and exploited nations you will ultimately see with crystal clarity and experience the reality of the terror that you have wrought on others, and it's going to be as terrifying as the elevator's gushing blood in the movie The Shining. Is what you're looking at on the internet feeding a system of exploitation to others? Are you carefully ignoring the reality of how people created in the image of God are being exploited to feed your appetite? What other desires? are you indulging that depend on exploitation? Exploitation seeks to diminish awareness of its evil and harm. God reveals reality in all its truth. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. Now, the fifth woe continues to build on the problem. God deals in reality. But Babylon, like all humanity, runs to idols who can't confront us with hard truth. Most of us don't literally build an image or buy one to have on our dashboard, but we make our career or our family or our bank account or our physical safety or our recreation or our relationships or our past the thing by which we measure our life's worth. Our worth comes from things that can never stand up. We use them to try to measure our own success. What we're called to do instead by God is to bow to the one, the only one, who breathed life into me and into you. Now, it's important to know that this prophecy that God is speaking to Habakkuk is true in both the near to Habakkuk term and in the far term relevant to us. Sometimes I think people try to work prophetic writings a little too hard and want to line up, well, who is Babylon today? Relate them to a specific country. But let's think a little differently in terms of near and far. Hello, it's your old pal Grover, who's going to demonstrate what we're talking about here. Hello there, this is your old pal Grover. Mm -hmm. And today I'm going to talk to you about near and far. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, Little Furry Grover, am going to show you near and far. Mm -hmm. Okay, here goes. Mm -hmm. First, this is near. Right here, near. Mm -hmm. Is near. You see? Oh, okay, I'll do once more for you, okay? Okay. This is near. This is far. And this is near again, okay? So that's Grover explaining near and far. Now this prophecy in Habakkuk, the near fulfillment of this prophecy, came true in events you can read in Daniel chapter 5. There's too much there, so I'm going to sum up. The king of Babylon has a party. At that party, he says, oh, I want the golden cups and service from judah's temple in jerusalem to be brought and we're gonna drink at our party to show who's boss while they're having this party suddenly a hand appears and it's writing on the wall and they freak out as you might if you're at a party and suddenly a disembodied hand appears and writes on the wall and it writes words but they don't understand the words and they talk among themselves and they Realize that Daniel can come and interpret it, and Daniel comes and says basically, you've been weighed in the balance, and you don't measure up, and this very day, God is going to take your kingdom away from you. Ouch. Now that was near fulfillment of what Habakkuk is hearing. But far fulfillment of this prophecy isn't so much about who is Babylon today, because what God describes in this series of woes is essentially the story of human history. One nation rises, has its moment of dominance and exploitation, think Cain killing Abel, and then it falls under the weight of its own depravity. And over and over again, another rises to take its place, and Cain is murdered, and somebody brags about it. The cycle that we see in places like the book of Judges and in the histories of the kings of Israel and Judah, it echoes through world history as well. One kingdom rises, one empire rises, exploits those around it, and then over time it finally falls under the weight of its own misbegotten values and the actions that come out of it. What about the far fulfillment of this prophecy? Here I have to say something about what's going on in our country right now. Thank God that we are re-examining some of the ongoing sources of injustice that have not been fully addressed. But notice that God here didn't tell Babylon, or Habakkuk even, to just better enforcement of the laws, or better laws. He demands instead that we acknowledge his sovereignty over all of us. Our problems will not be overcome by better laws or better law enforcement, even though those are both good things. But our problems will not be overcome because they're rooted deep in our humanity, our greed, our injustice, our violence, our exploitation, and our idolatry. This sequence of woes tells the story of human civilization perhaps not its high points perhaps not its shining moments but for sure a reality that comes up again and again and again and so lest we take this passage and decide that we can craft a political solution that's going to bring an answer to all our problems i want to read a 96 year old description of our political situation today. G.K. Chesterton said in 1924 in a newspaper article, the whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent the mistakes from being corrected. Thus, we have the two great types the advanced person who rushes us into ruin, and the retrospective person who admires the ruins. So that sounds a little pat, right? What are we supposed to do in response? It's a a clever and wry response by Gilbert Keith Chesterton, but what are we supposed to do today? Be complacent about it? No, being indifferent is exactly the opposite of what God has been saying in this passage. But rushing to defend the indefensible is wrong. And rushing to create a new indefensible solution is also wrong. Being complacent is part of the problem, not being part of the solution. So what does God say here? Here's how he sums up the the, this passage for us. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What do we do? God's presence is where we turn when there's injustice. God's presence is the place we turn when there's injustice. Because as we said for Woe One, injustice is what humanity does, but justice requires God's intervention. God's justice is necessary because all this arrogant indifference to the value of other people has to be dealt with and we don't have a mechanism to do it. Not really. We want to flush one group in order to elevate another and we're in a cycle of that. Here's what Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his second letter there. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So, when is finally justice going to come? It has to do with Jesus. It's going to come about when Jesus finishes the job, his work is done. But his return as king of this place is the thing that's going to finally break the cycle that we're experiencing of trouble, 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 and woe, woe, woe. So in that reminder of the first woe, just remember that God's justice is necessary because we have to deal with our indifference to the value of others. And falling short of God's standard isn't something we can excuse in ourselves or minimize by pointing out the wrong that others do. So here's how Paul responded when he heard that the Corinthian church, which initially apparently resisted his rebuke for flagrant sin in their midst, when he heard that they responded with repentance, when they turned 180 degrees and went the other way from where their sin was taking them. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, Paul says, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And this is how we're to be to be seeking in ourselves and in our gathering godly sorrow for wrongdoing, seeking to see wrongdoing among us over with, seeking to be unified in our pursuit of God and his best for us by sharing his values and living out those values in Christ. Now, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and that's my reminder. To remind you that even though we're still not meeting together in person, you can still give as you feel led to give. Don't give under compulsion. I don't want that. But if you feel led to give, you can give through PayPal or by mailing a check to our street address. What you give will not get you in good with God. That's not a function that it serves. It won't get you in good with us. That's also not a function it serves. But if Church of the Valley is where you are growing, we encourage you to share of your increase as God leads you, not under compulsion. Because God is the point of all we've looked at today. Jesus is the variable that breaks the loop that humanity is in. He's the condition that stops our recursive failure and the cycle of woe that one nation rises and inflicts on another and then receives in return. He's the one who's intervened in the person of Jesus, who isn't a moral story, but God himself come in the flesh to rescue us from this very set of woes in which humanity will otherwise always find itself. So let me read one more time. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Please bow your head and pray with me. Jesus, Messiah, our King, would you soften our hearts to see how the reality of the near fulfillment of this prophecy should fuel our desire for your will to take hold of our hearts in this era, in this far realization of the prophecy. Thank you for the mercy that you've showered on us in Christ. And God, would you make us dependent upon him to love one another in a way that builds up our gathering to resemble him more and more. Give us his willingness to serve one another out of gratitude because he broke the power of the cycle of destruction we were in. Make us confront the truth of our failings in a way that produces longing, concern, and a desire to see your will done. (sighs) May it be done among us, and may we live it out with our neighbors by the authority of Jesus. Amen. (sighs) May God grant us together, an experience of the breaking of that woe with which we've been plagued. God bless you.